Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 15th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Publicans from every corner of the country will travel to Trim in County Meath tomorrow for the 50th AGM of the Vintners Federation of Ireland. There is an unusually optimistic survey of publicans who feel confident about their futures that is being published ahead of the conference. Turnover is the same, if not greater than it was was pre-COVID for three quarters of publicans and over a third of them are planning to upgrade their pubs this year. Let's speak uh, to the new president of the VFI, John Clendenin, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. We've been hearing a lot about inflation and the cost of living and the pressures that's putting on businesses, uh, but publicans obviously holding their heads well above water. Yeah, thanks very much, Michael, and good morning to you and your listeners. Um, it certainly has been a, a difficult few years uh, for the pub trade since the, the pandemic and when that hit in, in March 2020. And I suppose uh, since we returned trading, um, the, 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 the rewards of having invested in, in, in properties um, and, and diversifying um, offerings um, has been um, accepted and there's been a positive response from, from customers. And thankfully, um, as you say, a majority of our members are reporting that um, you know turnover is up. Um, they look at, a, at seeing a profit this year, um, and there is a caution, cautious optimism. But I think we do need to be cognizant of the fact that you know it isn't every publican. Um, you know it is a, it is a majority, um, but it, there are challenges out there still. Um, but I think the main message that that we want to get out from our AGM today, um, or this week, is that uh, you know the pub trade is. Um, uh, a, a viable mm. um, um, lifestyle and 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 an opportunity to 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 because uh, there's about a, 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 a fifth of the pubs have gone, haven't they, since two thousand? Uh, absolutely, been, and and yeah. you know if mm-hmm. if I was to sit with you uh, any year over in recent years, uh, it has been a very different story, and and there's been mm-hmm. a, a darker side to pub closures. But it's a remarkable turnaround at the same time, John, isn't it? I, I mean, if we think of COVID and the lockdowns, and then when we were given liberty to move around we had to socially distance uh, many people would have thought this is the end of the pub yeah and i thought that myself i can tell you michael when when when, when it uh, hit in, in in march 2020 but i think really what it shows is is the resilience of, of publicans up and down the country um and what they have actually um strived to achieve at a time of sheer desperation to survive um, mm. and to invest against all the stakes. Uh, and I saw it in my own business at the time where we invested to, to grow capacity and diversify the product uh, and the service. And, you know, people thought that this was never going to work. And, all right. 
Well, Thankfully, we've came out the other side of it, and, and that's been repeated up and down the country. Well, and I take it that's why pubs are doing well when they are doing well. It's uh, the reinvention of what we used to consider to be a pub. A pub in the modern world is a very different business altogether. It's taken imagination and reinvention and, indeed, uh, all of this investment that you talk about. Maybe you tell us about your own business, Gill Traps in Kinnity, and, indeed, the glamping site and to the outdoor entertainment that you're planning. Yeah, so we've Giltraps Pub is a family business um, going back to the mid-1970s uh, and before that the Giltraps themselves were there in, since the 1890s um, and it had always been a traditional Irish pub in the centre of a, a small village in County Offaly um, and since I got involved 10 years ago uh, I suppose I made a concerted effort to you know, grow the business, introduce new initiatives um, and that has been repeated up and down the country whether it be you know, cocktail nights uh, sports venues, live music, festivals, you know, electric car charging stations. The, the, the diversity that we're seeing in the pub right across the country um, is significant. Mm. Um, and I suppose in more recent years, I introduced um, a glamping site. And really what that did, and, and you know, this is replicated right, right across the country now, is, is to make the pub a destination. Uh, and I suppose, you know, it's, it's only a, a short few weeks ago uh, since you had a, a president of the United States uh, visit loud and you know I think it's remarkable that we now are at a stage uh, where a head of state um, can can visit a pub and doesn't even expect to be uh, to lifting a point and I think that goes long and beyond uh, w- what the tradition of a pub was about just drinking there's mm. a lot more to it it's a social pub mm. the heart of communities uh, it, it's, a, it's a real vibrant vibrant place to be uh, and and our members are offering um, you know, a, a, a changing and evolving service that meets the needs and behaviours and attitudes. You're not a publican uh, by the traditional definition, really, are you? Uh, and uh, I suppose the question uh, is, is that the position that publicans need to adopt or many, need to be uh, many strings to your bow? Well, look, I, I suppose we have we have grown and diversified the product, but I think that's happening in, in all walks of life today, uh, you know, where, where, where regardless of, of, of what... Uh, business you're in, uh, it's a case of trying to, you know, broaden the appeal to as ma- as, as much of a customer base as, as is physically possible, uh, and that's what we've managed to do. And I think, you know, if you look at some of the research that has been done in recent times in terms of what people are expect from a, a, a pub today, uh, you know, it there is a higher standard, and we are competing, I suppose, to an extent for hard-earned disposable income, and mm. you know, it's a decision for consumers to make whether they spend the money on you know, their, their entertainment subscription, their local gym membership, a holiday overseas, or a trip to the local pub. And that's the space that we're in compared to uh, where we might have been you know, 20 years ago when it was a very different, um, uh, different viewpoint and, 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 and option altogether in terms of the pub offering. Okay, I was reading about your pub uh, this morning actually in the Irish Independent and quite a, a number of other pubs uh, that are being innovative in terms of how they go about uh, their business. Uh, there's uh, one pub that's reported on in Clonakilty that has heated outdoor booths uh, in the beer garden uh, for families with children who have autism. Uh, another uh, bar uh, is uh, hoping uh, to make it a haven for dog lovers. Uh, then we're looking at somebody who has takeaway 
Christmas dinners for people who are living uh, alone. Uh, and these are some of the innovative things that people are, are doing, like the pub in Kilkenny uh, that expects coachloads of tourists to pull up uh, because they want to be able to pull their own pint of Guinness in their pub. But I, I think uh, that Lied In beats all uh, from that report in the Irish Independent today, reporting on Paul and Anne O'Neill's business in Anagessen uh, and how Paul travelled to Galicia in Spain uh, to see what they were doing uh, in terms of how they offer seafood so we could replicate it in Anagassan. He went to Guatemala in Central America to learn about the coffee he serves uh, from a Dundalk roastery. Uh, they have a big Viking-style table uh, in the pub, uh, which people will be very familiar with uh, locally, of course. But he also talks about uh, the place that people come uh, for hospitality, but also where people work uh, and that it should be a place where people are happy to work and that people uh, who are employed in the Lied Inn don't ever work more than 40 hours a, a week. Uh, is staff turning over an issue in this day and age, uh, given that we've pretty much full employment in this country? Yeah, well, I, I think, first of all, just to acknowledge uh, Paul, Anne and, and Connor in, in Anagassan and the, the great job that they're doing there. I think uh, their pub is certainly an example of what a destination pub is in this day and age uh, and, and the diverse offering and the uniqueness of it. So uh, I think it's just important and, and you've, you've rightly highlighted some of the initiatives that they've gone to, 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 to make that difference and to have a unique selling point. But to get back to your point, Michael, in relation to, uh, to employment, you know, it, it, is, it is quite a competitive employment uh, marketplace out there at, at the moment and there's absolutely no doubt um, that if we want to uh, att- attract people to the trade uh, both from an, you know, a working staffing employee perspective but also to invest in the trade for the future it has to be uh, seen as, as, a, as, a, as a trade with a positive outlook uh, and that is you know that that is touching on all those points that you make uh, in relation to good working conditions, uh, good staff morale, uh, and and I think there's also a sense as well that you have uh, you know that it is a good place to come and work from a a, a social activity uh, and and you know particularly I, I know from our own younger staff is that it might be their first time to to really get interaction um, you know at a at a broader level uh, and it can do the world of good for their, for their confidence. Uh, and, and introduce them to a whole new network of people. Mm. As I said at the outset, uh, it's an unusually uh, positive message coming from publicans. Uh, the, I suppose the vibe we're getting from yourself uh, and the members you represent is that there's an upbeat mood uh, and publicans are, are doing well. Does that mean that the state doesn't have to, have to intervene in the way that it has been to support pubs? To be honest with you, Michael, I think it's the, the reason that the state, the reason that we're, we are having seen the upbeat vibe or, or mood that we are is because this, the state has supported uh, the pub trade, I think. Um, and if you look at some of the examples in particular over, over COVID-19, I don't want to dwell on it too much, um, but in more recent times, the likes of energy prices and the government would have intervened to, you know, have the temporary business um, energy support scheme, uh, you know, but, you know, we, we don't want to come across that, you know, we're overly upbeat either and that we're, we're going to be complacent about what some of the challenges are uh, into the future. And, you know, energy mm. prices, inflation, um, you know, in terms of working with suppliers, insurance are all uh, items that we need to really, you know, keep on top of and consider um, in terms of the challenges facing our business. 
Uh, and it's important that you know, businesses are not, no longer just looking at the top line, that the expenses are every bit as important uh, in this day and age. But there is a number of legislative pieces in the pipeline as well that could potentially have uh, a, a massive effect on our, on our trade. Uh, and we want to you know, remain highly engaged with, with the government and, and the department in relation to issues such as hospitality VAT rates um, and the sale of alcohol mm. bill in particular. And I think when you see um, you know, some of the, the proposals from that in relation to likes of licence deregulation uh, and cultural venues, mm. you know, I, I completely guess the need to, for a, a widespread and, and broader access um, to the sector. But you know, when you take a pub like Anna Gas and Loud uh, and, and Paul and Anne O'Neill's, you know, that is more than just a, a business. That's bricks and mortar with tradition, heritage, uh, culture that is a real cornerstone of a local economy and society, uh, and they need to be protected. And you know, I, I think there has that there has to be a cognizance to that that you know pubs are not just uh, four white walls and you sell uh, widgets over a mm. counter. There's a lot more to it, uh, and, and we need to just be cognizant of that. And I hope. Okay, that but when, over when the coming when, period we can we can highlight that more. When, when uh, you uh, make these points, uh, I suppose you're doing it in the context of one part of the hospitality sector. Uh, government will look at uh, the likes of uh, the 10 euro pints in Temple Bar uh, and say, why do they need uh, to continue with uh, that 9% VAT rate? Or, or some of the hotels who are charging extortionate prices whenever they can. Yeah, look, Dublin is, is not an area that, that, that we represent, um, but I would... I understand, but that's the point that... Uh, the, I suppose yeah, the question no, I, is if Dublin, whether it's the pubs charging a tenner a pint or the hotels who are charging three or four hundred euro a, a night for a, a room are, are pulling back the sector outside of Dublin. Yeah, look, that, that's a fair point. And, you know, I think it's, it must be noted that the VAT on, on, on drink uh, sales is not at the 9% rate, it's the higher rate of VAT. Um, but, you know, in general, you know, they, there are, it's a two-tier market to an extent in terms of the activity that we're seeing in Dublin and the rates that are being charged. That is not being reflected uh, right across the country in any way, shape or form, um, and certainly not where, where, where I am. Um, and, you know, as I said to you earlier, you know, it, we're looking and monitoring margins more than ever before. Um, and, and that's, you know, the key to business success in this day and age, but certainly in terms of the yielding Mm. Uh, of, of rates that you're, you're suggesting, it, it wouldn't be prevalent long, among our members. Mm. Uh, and I can see how it would be, you know, a, a difficult choice. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it, tourism is a key economic pillar um, to many rural counties up and down the country, if not all, in some way, shape or form. Uh, and I think there has to be an aspect of trying to protect that. OK, but if the government looks at restoring uh, the 13 or 13.5%, was it, uh, VAT rate for hospitality, uh, should, uh, or would you ask them uh, to look at, at the country in two halves, uh, Dublin and the rest of the country? Well, certainly what we will be doing is making every case to put forward that, you know, considering what our members have done in terms of diversifying into accommodation and food, um, that we would look for the VAT rate to be uh, to be maintained at 9% for the foreseeable future. Mm. And in terms of late night opening, is that something that your members are in favour of? It is certainly not something that is of, a, you know, a key priority for us as a, as a membership. Uh, you know, I, I think if you look at the, the current Closing hours, whether it be 11.30 or 12.30 uh, at weekends uh, and opening at 10.30, we would like to see that streamlined at opening 10.30, seven days a week. Um, but the reality uh, from the vast majority and, you know, maybe, you know, cities, I think there might be a, a, a different differing view uh, and that must be accommodated. But for the vast majority of our members, you know, there are challenges right now. 
about getting customers home at 12 o'clock at night, uh, we could only imagine what it would be like at 2, 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning. So okay. I don't think there's going to be a, a massive appetite um, for, for all-night opening uh, in, our, in our membership. Uh, but at the same time, I think it, it's a welcome move in order to you know, accommodate any providers or publicans um, in, in larger towns and cities that might see this as a business opportunity. Okay, John, we'll leave it there for the moment. I'm sure we'll be hearing much more from Trim uh, when your members uh, meet in uh, the Knightsbrook uh, tomorrow uh, and over the course of uh, the week for that matter. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. That's the new president of the VFI, the Vintners Federation of Ireland, John Clendenin. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if uh, you were listening to us uh, last week, you'd have heard local Fine Gael TD, Fergusa O'Dowd, talk about a number of uh, people in County Louth who are living in the Ice Age. The reason is that they can't afford to heat their homes, their mobile homes, uh, and possibly would have expected, like the rest of the country, to have enjoyed the energy credits that people made uh, available or the government made available to people, some €600 Euro, uh, thus far. Uh, but they haven't been able to claim them because they don't have their own individual electricity meter because the energy is supplied to their mobile homes by the park owner. Thanks. I want to thank, thank Deputy O'Dowd for, for reminding me of this issue. Um, and I'm frustrated about as well uh, because essentially people whose mobile home is their home it, it is uh, it is their permanent home um it's where they're registered to vote everything else um have essentially lost out on 600 euros uh in the form of an energy credit um i had hoped that an exceptional needs payment might be the simple solution to it because it wouldn't require legislation um but i i, I i'll follow up on it again but i, I acknowledge the injustice here and uh, keen to find a solution if we can Right, that's the Taoiseach Leo Bradker speaking to Fergus O'Dowd, who is on the line. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You've raised this countless times in the doll. I take it you were very happy to hear the Taoiseach describe it as an injustice. Yeah, well, it is an injustice. It's a, very, it's a small number of people because there, although it's a growing number of people who have to live in mobile homes because there's no accommodation elsewhere for them. Many of them are older people. Many of them are in poor health. And obviously a small number of them would have fallen on hard times. Uh, and because they don't have their own meter to get their meters, a private meter supplied by the park owner, uh, they can't get this money. Now, under the uh, social welfare are very, very good. And there are additional payments, in fact, the community welfare officers nationally and locally do an excellent top-class job. But the problem is the regulations require them. If I go in I live in a mobile home and I go under exception lease, I must produce my bank account if I have one. And we've had a case there only in the recent past where somebody has the sum of €2,000 in, in their bank account to help pay for them their funeral when they die. And they were turned down on the grounds that that was enough to pay the energy bill. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's the rule that the, mm. the community were for supplying. But the and reality un- is... Under ordinary circumstances, yeah. uh, that would be one thing. Uh, but it's a, yeah, a different thing when everybody it. else in the country, that's Michael O'Leary, uh, the brain surgeons, uh, whoever you can think of who has a lot of money, got the 600 euro. They did. You have it absolutely right, Michael. Now, so um, I did engage after my discussion uh, with the Taoiseach this week, last week, uh, with Minister Joe O'Brien, and I forwarded him on all the correspondence, and there's a lot of it. 
and I hope to talk to him in the week, during the week about this. Uh, but it's very unfair on these people, and I'm, I'm pleased that you're raising it. And no doubt, if if any of the residents are, are listening, they might want to, to con- comment on what I'm saying. But like, I mean, this is the you know, there is nowhere colder, as you say, than a mobile home in the middle of winter. Now, Minister Ryan is big and rightly so into climate change, but it's affecting the cold winter. Minister Ryan is really hurting these people, and he's not doing anything about it right now. It's it's pre uh, 2022 since I raised it with him, mm. and I find that entirely unacceptable that he's sitting there as Minister for the Environment, Climate and Communications, and this small number of people nationally, but very important disadvantaged people, particularly because of climate change, yeah. are not being supported by him. Uh, and are they confused about the logic of the carbon tax? Because I take it there is no prospect of insulating these homes in the way uh, that the minister talks about it. Well, so sometimes uh, more modern mobile homes are, are very well insulated. But if anybody has ever stayed in the mobile home, even in summer, if you wake up in the middle of the night at 2, 3 o'clock, they're freezing. So they, 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 they are much colder uh, than a normal home. Of course they are. And, and therefore, the energy costs are higher. And people's health is affected more, particularly if you're in poor health to, to begin with. So, look, it's, 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 it's a plain case of discrimination, in my view, mm. against the poorest in our society. And Minister Ryan can't say he doesn't know about it. <laughs> you know, yeah. all the PQs mm. and answers and letters from God knows. Mm. I've raised it also with the Residential Tenancies Board, which was referred to the PQ. They can't do anything. I've been on to the energy regulator. They can't do anything about it. Mm. But the Taoiseach surely can do something about it. I I mean, the Taoiseach stated on the floor of the doll that it's an injustice. uh, And I'm sure that something can be done, can it not? Well, it will be done. That's the way it has to be done. It must be done. But why drag it out for so long? And and when it is done, it must be retrospective because they've lost out on all of this mm. now. I mean, is, it, is it too is late? It not, I mean, uh, is it too late? I, I mean, I'm sure people uh, in the mobile homes will happy, be happy to get the €600, Euro, but the weather is changing for the better uh, and uh, they've lived through the very cold winter uh, and they've made their decisions whether to turn the heat on or, or not. Uh, will the €600 uh, do anything retrospectively to keep them warm? Well, no, but it will make sure that they... I mean, they've obviously expended their resources I mean, there's so many people, the number of people, and I'm talking about gas bills now at the moment, the number has increased in arrears from 20% of the controllers to 25%. So you're quite right. People didn't put on the heat when they wanted it. Uh, They didn't have the money to pay for it. But at least if they get the cash now, they will be able to make sure that they can plan for the winter. Uh, And I would expect that there'll have to be another uh, Mm. subvention again this year, uh, given the high cost of energy, which again hasn't come down. And again, I think that Minister Ryan seems to be dragging his feet on this as well. We all know how tough it is on families uh, for everybody to pay. And I mean, we, we need to do more government on this. Okay, I, I don't know if uh, you want to say uh, where the people are, are, are living that you're talking about, uh, but uh, it's obviously a, a mobile home park. Uh, how many people are we talking about? Well, th- that's a different question. I think uh, we reckon it's it's probably at least 100 or more in County Loudness need, perhaps even more. We don't know all the people, obviously, that live in these homes, but we know a number of them. They've been in 
to our offices and actually they've gone to other TDs as well about it. Uh, nationally, it seems that I'm the only TD has waited it actually in the doll, uh, you know, at leaders questions. Mm. Uh, but like it is, it isn't, there's 4,600 people in 2016 were living in Carvin's mobile homes. They put them all together as one unit. Now, I, I've no doubt that for census purposes, I've no doubt that figure is much bigger now because of the housing crisis. Mm. Uh, That's a national so, figure, is it? That's a national figure, mm-hmm. Michael, it yeah. is, yes. Mm-hmm. But but even apart from that, um, like it's, it's an injustice and it's an inequality and it's unacceptable. And it, it's, you know, I, I, I think one answer is if I can prove, and a lot of these people would be known to social welfare already because they would have pension books, they would have disability pensions or whatever, and their address is on these books. So, I mean, that, that by definition proves that you're living there. And it's not a case of Johnny Murphy sticking his name down for a caravan for one week or for a mobile mm-hmm. home and getting the money. You have to prove that you're living there. There's no doubt the people are living there. They've made payments through their accounts. You know, they would have a bank account. You know, they would have yeah. the mm. owners of Carbon Park can show that they have been making payments. So, like, it's, you know, it's, it's just not acceptable. Well, to the best of my knowledge, you are the only TD who has raised it as a, an issue and you've raised it on the floor of the doll. I don't know how many times, four or five times at least that I've heard you uh, raise it as an right. issue. And the yeah. Taoiseach saying there, oh, God, yeah, I'm glad you reminded me of it because it is a, an injustice. Uh, but uh, 4,600 people in the country, it really is a small group of people who've been denied what everybody else in the country has received um, I, I, I don't know um, it, The other part Michael is that families that would be travelling families yeah. or families that would be living on local authority uh, supplied sites uh, they, they would be uh, they've already got that money so this is a small okay. cohort outside of that Okay, I, I, I was just going to say. Thank you for supporting Oh no, I was just going to say. I don't know why it is that you you are the only TD who has raised it. Has it gone under the radar? Or what is the case? Or have you spent some time in these mobile homes? You described it as living in the ice age. How cold is it? Or what is your experience of them? Well, my experience uh, on holidays in a, in a, in a mobile home when the children were younger, waking up in the middle of the night, so crying baby and getting okay. <laughs> freezing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they are very, very cold because they're just they're very, a lot of them are very flimsy, uh, particularly ones that might be just in the summertime. That was my mm. experience. Yeah. But in the wintertime, they do say there's a higher spec. But like, I mean, I have met people obviously in, in, in these mobile homes, uh, but like it clearly, look, they just have to deal with it, and and I have to embarrass them to deal with it, and that shouldn't be what I have to do. But I, 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 I will continue to do it, Michael. That's my job. Okay. Well, you'd be optimistic, I'm sure, after hearing uh, the Tijak describe it as a, a, an injustice. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, and thank, thank you, indeed, for, uh, for joining us on okay, the program. That's uh, Finnegal TD for Loud and East Mead, Fergus O'Dowd. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, record uh, prices for people renting once again with an 11.7% increase over the course of the year nationally. Over the last year in County Louth, rent has become 9.4% more expensive. In County Meath, it's 10.7% more expensive. That's in the year up to the end of April, according to the DAF ie rental price report quarter one for 2023. Let's speak to the author of that report, Ronan Lyons, who is an economist at Trinity College in Dublin. A very good morning to you, Ronan. Thank you indeed.
indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, this is uh, the report up to the end of quarter one, up to the end of April. But of course, there's four quarters I- in every year. Uh, and if you look at these increases, most of them were in the first three quarters of this year. That's right. So if you think about this as the numbers you gave there, the roughly 10% increase in open market rents in, in Louth and Mead, that's what happened in the second and third and fourth quarters last year and the first quarter this year. And during 2021 and 2022, first as we reopened from, from COVID, if we can think back that far, um, and then with the arrival of tens of thousands of, of Ukrainians last year, the strong economic rebound coupled with a very strong inward migration, both of those ha- meant that rents rose really strongly each of those quarters during 2021 and 2022. And that's really why the number that you called out there, that kind of 10% increase is as high as it is. If you look just at what happened in the first three months of, of this year, it's only a 0.2% increase in Loud and a 0.7% increase in Mead. That's significantly below what we've been getting used to, unfortunately, over the last couple of years. Mm. And there might be some signs, not just in Loud and Mead, but around the country, especially in and close to the urban areas, that the willingness to sustain any more increases in rent is not there, that the pressure might be easing slightly in the rental market and, and therefore inflation should uh, come down. Now, inflation coming down is not the same as rents coming down. It just means they're going up much more slowly. But at least it's, it's not. It's, we're no longer talking about record rates of inflation. Okay, the tide is turning, uh, but uh, not very far. And you're going to continue to play what a lot of us would think are extortionate uh, prices for rent. You described this as crumbs of comfort. Yeah, I mean... The fact, as you mentioned, like if we're talking in, um, I think it was Nixon at one point had to go on uh, on TV and say the rate at which inflation is going up is going down. And once you're talking about something as as kind of uh, uh, the levels and the changes and so on, really what people want to see is they want to see rents coming back down. As you mentioned there, uh, the, the level of rents, about fifteen fifty a month in, in Laos, all in average, mm. and a little over 1700 in in Mead. And if you go back um, to 10 years ago, in Laos, it was about 640 a month, and in Mead, it was about 680 a month. Um, now, you could argue yeah, that was a time of very high unemployment and emigration, and obviously it was going to turn around, but there's nothing inevitable about rents having increased 150% um, since then. That's because there's simply not enough new rental homes being built over the last 10 to 12 years. Right, and that's, and the, point, result, is, that's the point, yeah. isn't it? That, uh, that 1700 or 1500 uh, average uh, that you may pay is if you can find somewhere to rent, there aren't uh, enough places to rent. Yeah, that, that, that really is the, the the problem at the moment. I mean, it's it, it's not it's not in your area, but just to give you an example, yeah. Waterford City, an entire city, um, had three properties available on the open market on the first of May. Um, Limerick had six. Um, overall, across the country, there were fewer than a thousand homes on the first of May. To put that in perspective, even during twenty seventeen, eighteen, and nineteen, when if the rental market was pretty tight and rents were going up enough that the government brought in the rent pressure zones, even then there were four or 5,000 properties on the market. And now we're talking about fewer than 1,000 at any particular point in time. And in Dublin's commuter counties, it, the number would have been usually around 400. And now we're talking about 100. It is slightly up on this time last year. Mm. But as I say, kind of crumbs of comfort, really. If, if, if 
to get it back up to four or five hundred um, being available, we'd really need to see construction um, taking place outside of Dublin in terms of new rental homes. And that's not really happening. And if there is such demand uh, for somewhere to rent uh, and so little places available for people to rent, uh, I suppose uh, the obvious conclusion is you can charge what you want or almost. Uh, and is that the point with uh, this change? Uh, has it reached its peak in terms of affordability? Uh, is it just simply as expensive as you could possibly get uh, when you put uh, flats out or houses out uh, to rent at these prices? Yeah, I mean, when you, when you think about this, the one thing the rental market has that the sales market doesn't really, is it has the ability to put more people into the same property. Normally, when you're in the owner-occupied of the sales market, you've got a, a, a an individual, a couple or a family, and that's who's going to live in the home. In the rental market, you can take the same property that might have had uh, um, uh, a cohabiting couple a couple of years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, and then instead of them sharing two beds, I actually remember the glory days, maybe ten years ago myself and my wife actually had a three bed to ourselves and we were renting. Uh, I would imagine that property now might have five or six paying adults in it, um, sharing bedrooms, um, whether they're a couple or not, um, and every single bedroom with a, with a paying tenant, because that's the kind of pressure on, on room space um, that, that there is at the moment. And we simply haven't, as you say, we simply haven't been adding the supply that we've needed. Okay. And you've been looking at uh, what we've been losing and how landlords are selling up almost uh, more than 5,000, 5,350 landlords uh, who have given a termination of notice anyway. That's right, and that probably doesn't capture all the departures because uh, there's, well, there's different categories for 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 giving a um, a notice for the tenant to, to leave a property, um, and and a couple of them relate to the property basically leaving the rental segment, not just selling it, but a family member moving in or a couple of other conditions where extensive renovations are expected to be empty for at least eighteen months, that kind of thing, and it means that even in Dublin, where there has been construction of new rental homes um, over the last two, three years, uh, and indeed some people have been giving out that there are too many rental homes getting built in Dublin, um, but even in Dublin, it's basically just treading water that in the last six months of, of last year, um, that there may have been 3,000 new rental homes completed, but there were about 3,000 probably lost um, of the existing rental stock. And outside of uh, of Dublin, there have been no new rental homes coming on stream, um, at least in, in purpose-built developments. And I'd say probably about 4,000 rental homes were lost in the same period. Um, so th- this is the problem, is that it, well, rental demand is growing, rental supply, if anything, is shrinking. And you say that you can't stop or you shouldn't try to stop people uh, from exiting the rental market, from landlords selling up. I mean, we, we, we developed a rental system in the 90s and 2000s that was basically reliant on single person or you know small groups of, of people coming together to have one or two or three rental properties. And in that case, you know, if you, if you offer that to people in their 40s and 50s, 20 or 30 years ago, when they get into their 60s and 70s, they will often want to sell that property um, because it was their their retirement uh, strategy. Now, that's fine as long as the flow of new people coming in to buy rental properties 
phase up, but it hasn't. Very few people now are 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 as an on an individual basis um, buying a property for for rental. So much like the rest of Europe, we made a turn maybe about six, seven years ago to, to, to look to institutional landlords. That's the norm in, in most of Europe, that you would have um, uh, companies or uh, organisations that, that run, professionally run um, uh, rental homes. That has been very slow coming on stream because we've got very high construction costs in, in this country and arguably because we've kept on changing the rules. There's nothing wrong with having rules in your rental sector, but if you keep changing the rules, it's very difficult for somebody whose perspective is over 20 or 30 years to know what they're going to get if they think you're going to change the rules in six months just after they've they've bought the property. So mm. the, the exits have kept happening, but the entries of new rental properties haven't, and that's where we've got stuck. Okay, so... Uh, perhaps uh, rents won't get much more expensive, uh, but uh, I take it to conclude uh, there's no great prospect of them dropping uh, to any significant level uh, in uh, the coming months. I think that's a pretty fair summary, unfortunately. So um, uh, uh, I think probably our, our best case scenario is in three or six months' time, you and I would be having a chat and saying rents look like they're stabilising. Right. I'd be surprised. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been wrong many times before, so I'm, I'm sure I may be wrong again in the future. Um, um, I, I'd be surprised if we were talking about rents falling in the next right. three or six months. Ronan, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Ronan Lyons is an economist at Trinity College in Dublin and the author of the report for daft.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Barry Kenny is uh, the communications manager with Irish Rail, but as many of our, our listeners will be aware if uh, they read the Irish Independent uh, this morning, he's just back from Ukraine where he spent a week volunteering. Good morning, Barry. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us to tell us uh, about your trip uh, to Lviv. Uh, a very interesting trip uh, by all accounts. Uh, I see uh, that uh, you've been put to work and hard work uh, at that uh, by the sounds of it uh, with uh, you becoming an expert a master beetroot shredder according to the report in the Irish Independent today uh, and somebody uh, who ended up hauling lots of sacks of produce from trucks to storeroom tell us a little bit more about your experience Yeah this is an organisation Michael called uh, Frontline Kitchen and uh, it's been in existence in the Beeb actually since 2014 when when Russia first uh, invaded uh, Ukraine um, and obviously post the, the full-scale invasion last year, uh, they expanded quite dramatically their operations and uh, over time began to uh, look for international volunteers to, to assist. And what they do is basically they prepare food for, for the front lines and um, that primarily comes in the in the form of kind of dehydrated packs uh, so they can be transported in big volumes and then you add water and uh, for example each kind of relatively small pack which would be you know not dissimilar to the size of maybe a bag of sugar uh, when you add water to that that forms 20 servings of, of, of borscht on the on the front line uh, which is the, the, the Ukrainian uh, soup that people may be familiar with so um, it's uh, something that's what I became aware of uh, a few months ago and just inquired about what was involved in, in, in volunteering and really what's involved in volunteering is showing up uh, and being willing to, 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 to work reasonably hard. Um, as you say, um, uh, I, I certainly didn't expect to become quite as familiar with, with beaters as, as I ultimately did <laughs> okay. between, yeah. between peeling and shredding and, uh, and, and packing. Um, obviously, kind of you know, hauling goods from, from trucks for deliveries uh, as well, peeling potatoes, 
spreading cabbage. Um, uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's hard work, but it's very rewarding. You're working with uh, a lot of local people from Lviv and around Ukraine and, and really quite a, a, an exceptional group of volunteers from around the world. Yeah, I got the impression reading the article uh, this morning uh, that you formed some very strong bonds uh, with the people that were working uh, alongside you if uh, there wasn't great crack at times, which is probably not that uh, unusual in a, a war zone or as close to a war zone that you were uh, because you were working, as you say, sending stuff to the front line. It's that kind of, of camaraderie uh, that people uh, have uh, in order to get through these things, uh, I think uh, is quite often experienced. But uh, your day job, obviously, with Erin Road Aaron uh, is something that uh, people will be familiar with uh, you, uh, generally speaking, uh, Barry Kenny. Uh, and I read in the Irish Independent this morning uh, that the railways have seen more deaths uh, than any other sector outside of the military. Yeah, and the I suppose this speaks to one, I suppose, just the, the, the role the railways play, but two, the, the whole society uh, approach uh, to uh, this war that you see in Ukraine, uh, whereby between organisations and volunteers, you know, everybody is doing their part. Uh, the railways, as people will remember at the, at the outset, when the full-scale invasion began, uh, were transporting you know people in their hundreds of thousands uh, to the borders to, to, to escape uh, risk. Um, and over time, as well, they've come to another a number of other uh, roles as well between transporting goods, uh, between uh, bringing in the foreign dignitaries that you see. None of them are flying in. They're, they're all coming in uh, by rail. But one of the things that uh, the railways have done in Ukraine as well is that when uh, areas have been liberated, is to restore services as quickly as possible. Um, and what has come with that, as well, both in terms of the, 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 the conflict is people have been killed because infrastructure has been targeted, but also when the country reopened railway lines, there's been things like mines as well. So mm. um, it, it's very, very stark, but there's a, a, a real, I suppose, kind of a you know, we, uh, uh, not to, to draw any direct comparison, but like we know when we have extreme weather here, kind of our instinct is let's keep going, let's keep moving as much as we can and, uh, and keep things going. This is that kind of, you know, determination to keep going brought to uh, uh, a whole other level. Uh, and as I say, it, it isn't just the railway, but just because we're mm. familiar with it here, it's so impressive to see it. And one of the things that, that when I arrived to Lviv is there's a, an information board in the main station uh, saying, you know, trains from Lviv to Mariupol, uh, the trains from Lviv to Lashansk, and, and we know those trains aren't running. But what they're saying is, just as soon as we liberate these areas, we'll be back, and, uh, and they will work immediately to restore those services. It's a, it's a resilience that's just kind of extraordinary to see, actually, up close. Mm. And confidence uh, in terms of the outcome of the war. Yes, uh, and I was probably surprised at that to extent. Uh, I, I mean, I don't think anybody who's watching from any distance can be, you know, surprised at the resilience and the determination. But uh, you know, uh, certainly with the, the counteroffensive that is uh, imminent, there is a, a real confidence uh, that that will be successful. That that will certainly uh, strengthen Ukraine's uh, position. And you know, people are worried. Obviously, they're they're upset. They have family on on uh, the front lines. Uh, and you see and hear that as well. But there is, as I say, this, this determination of success and, and a belief in success as well. And, you know, 
you, you're always going to feel you want to do as much as you can to help. Um, uh, but even, you know, being able to go for a week, whatever, like there, there's a genuine kind of gratitude to that. And also that, you know, for whatever little bit that you can do, you're, you're showing that, you know, people around the world are still thinking about Ukraine and, right. and, and still working to help. So it's, uh, I'd say, uh, it's probably one of the best things I've ever done, to be perfectly honest with you, I, right, yeah. I, uh, say in terms of, of spending that, that, that time. Uh, and you do come away and strengthen by it yourself, frankly. Mm, very good. Um, I suppose Lviv uh, has been a uh, uh, hopping stone uh, for people to uh, evacuate uh, Ukraine, many of them uh, leaving the country through Poland. It's just 70 kilometres from the Polish border, isn't it? Uh, did you see uh, a big movement of people? Uh, interestingly, I saw quite a number of people going the opposite direction. Um, right. We had, when I was travelling in, uh, Przemysl is the town on the on the Polish border that's as uh, was been the, the largest single border crossing point. Um, and it was interesting to see kind of you know women and children uh, going back. Uh, whether that's kind of you know more kind of temporary rather than full time, uh, it, it may be still because I think you know uh, people. Families don't want necessarily their full families back. The, 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 the people that are in the military don't necessarily want their full families back because obviously, you know, since I left, for example, um, the, the, the week after I left, uh, there was quite a significant increase in uh, in attacks, even through to last Saturday night, as people know, during the Eurovision, there was uh, attacks uh, deliberately targeted in Western Ukraine because that's where the lands were in the, the Eurovision came from. So, um, uh, and that is the region that, that Lviv is in. So I, I think people perhaps kind of look at the at the lie of the land, as it were, in terms of the opportunity maybe to meet with family I, I, I travelled with. Mm. One, one young woman who was going back for her sister's wedding, her sister uh, remained there. Her father was on the front line in, in Zaporizhia, and it was going to be the first time in 12 months that the family had met uh, together. So uh, people as well are taking opportunities where they can, but I don't get the impression of a huge overall return. One thing that we have had is, is a lot of people from around Ukraine. There's a lot of people, I think we perhaps don't think of the fact that we've got huge numbers of internally displaced people so Lviv's population has swelled in that regard, and a lot of people that I met, you know, where you kind of go, right, I'm meeting you from Lviv, you're actually meeting people from, from Mariupol and from Mikhailov and Odessa and places like this, uh, who have gone to what is the relative safety uh, of Lviv uh, during the war. Okay. Did you uh, ever have any concern for your own safety? I, I didn't, to be perfectly honest. Uh, what is there, it's not that you're oblivious to the, the potential risk. But um, it was, I suppose, because the city centre itself hasn't seen damage. That's kind of you know, the large extent of what I would saw. You see sandbags on buildings, particularly government buildings, uh, on the on the on the ground floor. You see military around. You see injured military around, and that's quite stark uh, as well. But I, I did think going that uh, perhaps I'd be kind of slightly tense on edge and that when I kind of cross the border back out I'd be thinking oh gosh you know, thank goodness there was no risk but I really didn't ultimately feel that uh, at all as I say perhaps that would have been different if I'd have been there the following week because uh, there was a significant increase uh, in attacks that week but uh, so the, the air defence pretty good, um, thankfully, uh, and obviously hope that uh, that can be strengthened still further. Uh, but it, 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 is, it, it 
it feels that they're on the surface like a normal European city, albeit they are kind of dealing with something that's obviously truly mm. abnormal. Okay, but uh, you were in a, a country at, at war uh, and uh, you witnessed uh, the lists of the war dead uh, being posted on a, a daily basis in uh, the main plaza and uh, visited some of the graves uh, from those who were from Lviv who fell. Yes, uh, and that was quite upsetting. Uh, uh, the the square, it, 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 it posts pictures and there's a biography of the people who die and like, as I say, each day there was, there was new posters uh, up there. That's one city in, in, in one part of Ukraine. You multiply that across the country and the, and the scale of loss becomes apparent. The, the uh, main cemetery then, uh, which is just on a tram line about two kilometres from the, the city centre, um, in normal times it's a you know, tourist attraction because there's lots of old ornate graves in it, but there's an entire new section just outside its walls that is dedicated to, to the defenders who've been killed in, in this uh, conflict since February of last year. And it just goes on and on. And it is, uh, it's upsetting from point of view of, as well as the scale, from the use, you know, the, the youngest person I saw there was, was, it was 18 when they were killed. Uh, you know, those things you see just kind of get you. You know, there was a mm. there was a person I, I, I turned 50 last year. Uh, there was a, a a man's grave who you know died like five days before he turned 50. You saw that. You saw the flags were bedecked on the on the graves. There was kind of a lot of personal detail there. Always a photo of somebody in their military uniform, but then photos from their own life, be it with family, be it with pets, be it doing hobbies, uh, and a lot of personalization on the on, on the graves. And there's just hundreds of them. And I was walking up through uh, the graveyard, and because of the flags, people are slightly camouflaged if they're there. And I just happened to, to, to before I knew it, I was upon a, a, an older woman, I think in her, say in her late 60s, uh, and just sobbing at her son's grave, and it was uh, it was just harrowing to to see it, um, and just the, the the waste that's been, that's been caused mm. by, by Russia's invasion. Okay, having said that, the experience uh, was one of the best you said you've ever had. Uh, would you uh, recommend people uh, volunteer if uh, they find it as interesting as I uh, find listening to you this morning? I would, and, and look, I don't, you know, not everybody's in a circumstance that they can um, and uh, appreciate that, but I think if people feel that, you know, it's something that they're, they're they're willing to do, interested to do, there's a lot of opportunities. There's a website called volunteeringukraine.com that shows opportunities not only in Lviv, but lots in the Kiev uh, region as well. The organisation I went to is called Frontline Kitchen, if you, if you search for them. Uh, on Twitter, uh, you'll find the details. And it literally is, if you've got a long weekend, there's work to be done. Uh, we took in two truckloads, for example, of, of, of beetroot sacks uh, um, uh, uh, one day. And uh, literally, I'd say there's a couple of weeks of peeling in, in, in those. Uh, there were small little beets. We didn't like the we didn't like the small ones, but a lot of work for not all that return. But Frontline Kitchen are, are, are there. They're available. And there's loads of other opportunities to volunteer, I just stumbled upon while I was there. For example, there's an animal sanctuary just outside the city centre, um, and obviously there's been a lot of abandoned and injured uh, pets from the, the areas where which have seen conflict, and they just need volunteers to go up and walk the dogs. Mm. Uh, so you know, a lot of pet lovers uh, in in Ireland, and that's a great opportunity to to do something as well. It's 
it's a tremendous experience. It's it's it's, it's very rewarding, and and I think to really, I think kind of appreciate what what a, what a country has been through. I, I thoroughly recommend it if people think it's something for them. As I say, Frontline Kitchen and volunteeringukraine.com are the two things to search for. Okay, well look, thank you indeed uh, for telling us about it. Very, very interesting uh, experience. Uh, I don't think anybody can argue with that. But thanks, as I say, Barry, for joining us on the programme this morning. Barry Kenny, Communications Manager with Erin Road Erin. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, the roundtable on migrations in our common home is a group of 12 organisations that are looking at how we deal with people who are seeking international protection in this country. One of uh, the members of the group is Social Justice Ireland. And as you've been hearing in the bulletins this morning, the central message from the roundtable on migrations in our common home is that the current approach is not fit for purpose. Let's speak to Colette Bennett, who's an economic and social analyst with Social Justice Ireland and on the line. A very good morning to you, Colette, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You're looking for an information, disinformation campaign to be put in place uh, to educate people on why people are coming to this country. Absolutely. So, you know, we, we think of migrants and, and migrants kind of range across the spectrum. You've got people who are coming to take up very high paying jobs who are also migrants. Um, and then you have people who are coming with little more than the shirt on their back. They have nothing. They're fleeing from persecution. They're fleeing from wars. They're fleeing from the impacts of climate change. Um, and we are seeing, and we need to be very, very clear on this, we're seeing a very, very small proportion of the millions of migrants that are forced to to move every single year. Mm. In fact, the estimate is that it's over 21.5 million people um, that are forced to move just because of the impact of climate change alone. We're not seeing anything like that. It's a very small proportion. What we are calling on government to do is to plan properly. So when we talk about planning for our population growth, it's not just about the number of babies that are born, the number of people that are dying. It's actually also about the number of migrants all types of migrants that are coming in, because this is going to be a feature. But very, very urgently, and particularly in light of what happened over the weekend in Dublin, Mm. very, very urgently, we need to combat this misinformation and disinformation. So the the difference between the two is disinformation is essentially the, the, I suppose, the intentional spreading of of nonsense, of lies, Um, whereas misinformation is, is picking that up um, and unintentionally spreading it, not realising you know how damaging it is, or or, or the fact that it's, it's based on nothing. Yeah. Um, we have seen from the recommendations of the Commission in, on on media, on reform of the media, um, that there was the establishment of a, a working group on disinformation and misinformation. They sat for the first time in March of this year. That work needs to be ramped up. Um, and you know, as part of that, there needs to be a whole information campaign that looks at the experience of migrants, why they are fleeing the countries they are fleeing, and the experience of living here, what is happening here, combating some of the lies that are being spread in mm. relation to the types of economy. And you're not going to stop the lies, uh, and you're not going to stop the type of actions that we saw over the weekend in Sandwich Street and then on Mount Street, uh, because, well, I mean, they're well, really we, extreme uh, and repugnant uh, I don't know, people who are, are never going to be convinced uh, probably don't have the wherewithal to understand uh, the situations that people are, are in if uh, they could stoop to such a, a level that they would burn them out of their homes which is disgracefully a tent on a Dublin street. Oh absolutely 
absolutely. It is disgusting what happened over the weekend. But what we're saying is when you start with trying to combat this disinformation, these lies, it gives less of a foothold for this type of hate that results in that type of situation happening. So we know, for example, that there are areas of disadvantage where people are are being asked to house migrants or not even being asked, where migrants are are being essentially warehoused. Um, These areas, those places exist those kind of warehouses, those top of pubs, whatever they are, they exist because those areas haven't been uh, invested in in so long. If they were anywhere else in the country, they would be full of thriving businesses right now, but they're not. And those communities had some legitimate concerns at the time where they wanted to know, well, okay, if we're if we're getting more people, where's the more resources? Where's the more healthcare, the more housing, the more education, the more of everything else that we need? And those those concerns weren't addressed. And instead of that, far-right activists came in, they had a foothold of fear there, and they spread lies. Mm. So it is much easier to do that when you're not combating it actively. And we need to see politicians. Like it is, It's incredible to me that politicians came out and said, well, this is a very complicated issue. That was an attempt made on lives at the weekend. There is nothing complicated about that. That needs to be damned. That needs to be com- combated in the strongest possible terms and condemned by all politicians. Um, because this is more about election, more than about election cycles. This is about people's lives. And the reason those lives are in danger is because we don't have the infrastructure in place to accept people into this country and to actually provide them with their human rights. We are we are going against our obligations in, on an international stage in terms of, of how we treat migrants and how we, we do anything but take a human rights approach to migrancy. So the first and most urgent thing is, is about combating all of that. We need also to enforce the, the anti-discrimination legislation that was put on the table last year. That needs to be brought into to place and it needs to be resourced so that guards can actually enforce it. Some of the, the publications um, from the, the, network, the Irish Network Against Racism would, would blow your mind in terms of the, the case studies that they highlight. Um, and I won't go into it in detail because actually some of them are quite upsetting. Um, but, you know, if you read into that, you will see just how far we need to travel to actually give people the basic dignity of being able to, to live a decent life here. You'd wonder why um, we didn't learn um, from experiences elsewhere. Uh, it seems like it's the British experience, it's the first one that comes to mind at least, that's been repeated in this country uh, with uh, people uh, adopting racist attitudes, going further uh, and uh, becoming outright discriminatory uh, Nazi-type figures or National Front-type groups, right-wing groups, whatever names you want to put on them, uh, but violent and exceptionally hateful. Uh, but uh, it really is only a small minority of people who are making a lot of noise uh, and it really shouldn't have been allowed to have got a foothold, should it? No, it absolutely shouldn't. I mean, if we had proper accommodation and proper infrastructure to support migrants who are coming here, there wouldn't be a situation where there would have been a lane in Dublin filled with tents of migrants that could be so quickly set on fire. Um, and put those lives in danger. So we need to, to learn from that and we need to start putting in more more permanent measures to actually support people who are coming here. And as part of that, and part of that planning, 
um, that kind of longer term planning that we're looking for is that we're calling on government to convene a, a working group to actually forecast the migration. We know climate change isn't going anywhere. We know that climate change is one of the drivers of migration. Therefore, we are going to see an increase of people who are desperate and who are coming here and we and who need their human rights to be respected and defended. So we need to plan for that properly as part of our population projection, mm. a part of our service planning into the future. Mm. Um, should we stop these type of protests um, that we've seen over the weekend? I, I mean, there's obviously all sorts of reasons not to do that, uh, whether it's uh, because of uh, constitutional rights that people have to assembly or the idea that there should be freedom of speech. Uh, but these have got very sinister they have gotten very sinister. I mean, absolutely, there needs to be something done. Excuse me, something done in terms of when these protests take a turn. We have no problem with peaceful protest, absolutely none whatsoever. That is a, a fundamental right. When it comes to the incitement of hatred, that needs there is legislation against that, and that legislation needs to be enforced. And it needs to be enforced very quickly before things become violent as they have been. Mm. You also want a human rights based approach. Uh, I, I'm not sure what that would mean, but there is a, a model uh, from Scotland that you're asking the government to look at. That's it, exactly. So in Scotland, they have implemented this, you know, there's a, there was a national task force on human rights and they implement that approach for all of their government policy in basically taking a human rights approach first. So rather than a, what resources do we have, we'll squeeze people in where we can. If we can, it's more about well, what do people actually need at their point of entry. They need shelter. They may well need health care. They may well need psychological supports. We saw what happened when the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened. The temporary protection directive kicked in at a European level. And people, at least initially, when they came here, they had accommodation pledges, they had education places, yeah. they had social welfare supports, they had health care, including psychological care. Um, so, um, And they had job supports, employment supports where that was possible, and they had childcare. That is a human rights first approach. We, did, we weren't able to resource it, which is an issue for government, given the fact that we are a very wealthy country and we're looking at um, a surplus of about 65 billion over the course of the next few years. Mm. So it's not about not being able to resource it. We just haven't done it. And we need to start doing that properly so that we can take that human rights based approach. Okay. What about integration? Uh, because people generally re- react very well to other people. Uh, we've seen it in the north uh, when you've working class communities either side of the peace line who hate each other to uh, the very uh, essence of what they are until they meet each other and then realise, well, there's very little difference between us uh, apart from some politics or or religion um, because people are people. Uh, But when you have mystery about people, when you don't meet people, there's suspicion and then that can lead to to other problems. No, you're absolutely right. And that brings us back then to that 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 first ask around combating misinformation and disinformation. Some of the most uh, successful campaigns, political campaigns that have taken place in the last, within the last decade have been about telling people's stories, about making people aware that we're actually not all that different, that if we could only listen to each other, we could understand each other's viewpoint. And when it comes down to a community level, the community and voluntary sector have been phenomenal, leading the way 
in in the integration space, in holding events, in holding supports, in holding festivals, in coffee mornings at a local level, just so that people can get to know each other, to remove that kind of suspicion, that fear. Uh, We need, absolutely, we need more of that that needs to be resourced. Funding needs to be driven towards that. And it needs to be done at at a national scale. There needs to be a policy base behind that to make sure that we are actually getting to that level. You're absolutely right. There's huge learnings to be made um, from some of the initiatives that took place in the north, but also from what's currently happening at a community level. Okay, Colette, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, dentists met in Kilkenny over the weekend and uh, they are far from happy with their lot. Uh, they say there's a, a number of crises uh, with dental services in uh, this country, particularly in relation uh, to recruitment and indeed to capacity with many not able to take on new patients or new child patients uh, for that matter. Let's speak to Fintan Hurrahan who is the CEO of the Irish Dental Association. Good morning Fintan, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. All of the problems that you have in providing services has led to dentists voting no confidence in the Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly. Good morning, Michael. Yes, I think that reflects the intense frustration that dentists feel because on the one hand, as the meeting in Kilkenny showed, there are great advances in dental care and new technology which dentists want to offer all of their patients. But unfortunately, the ones who have the greatest difficulty, who depend on the state to help them access the uh, dental care they need, are being left behind. And that's what was really behind the decision to vote no confidence in the minister and indeed his officials. Okay, Uh, and this comes, uh, you say, despite promises that have been broken and that has led to the trust that you would have in the minister or the government being broken. Well, you know, we recently met the minister and we presented him with a dossier of two decades of neglect, distrust, broken promises, missed deadlines, false dawns. The minister said, look, I want to reset the relationship Uh, Unfortunately, the government last week uh, defeated a bill to introduce mandatory CPD uh, educational requirements on dentists to to keep up to date, essentially uh, uh, to ensure we maintain the highest quality of care and protect patients, and the government couldn't even support that. So, you know, there is an intense frustration amongst dentists that, on the one hand, there's great opportunity to provide better standards of, of of dental care, but that shouldn't be only available for those who can afford it. You know, we have problems in uh, the the screening service in the HSE has collapsed. Uh, Medical card patients can't find a dentist because there are so few dentists left in the scheme. And while the state can solve every problem, it has a significant role to play in in solving many of the problems that we have uh, in dentistry right now. And 93% of your members said they wouldn't sign up to a medical card scheme as as it's currently constructed. Yes, well, the minister specifically asked, he said, look, it might take us a couple of years, uh, by his estimation, to agree and, and introduce a new scheme. Uh, would dentists go back or, or join for the first time the medical card scheme while, while those talks get underway? Now, they haven't begun yet. We asked our members how they felt about that, and 93% of those who are not currently in the scheme said, no, absolutely, they wouldn't. So, you know, dentists have lost all, all confidence and faith 
in this administration and, you know, they follow many other administrations who have offered no priority to dealing with the problems in oral health. And that's a serious problem. Mm. If dentists are frustrated, are patients also frustrated? Uh, Are you getting it in the neck uh, from patients when they come in and, you know, tell you how long they've had to wait to get an appointment? Well, I suppose ultimately patients who see the dentists are, 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 are glad of the, the care they receive. As you say, it's the ones who can't access the dentist. They are the ones who are frustrated. And equally, dentists are frustrated that they, they, they are not able to see. I mean, there are capacity issues. We don't have enough dentists and nurses and hygienists. Uh, and that's an issue that, that the state can help with as well. But yes, undoubtedly, many patients are, are frustrated and Dentists ultimately want to help everyone uh, achieve better oral health. So there's a huge amount of frustration amongst both patients and dentists. And when when the government promises to do things and doesn't follow up, I think that only compounds the frustration. Right. Uh, And children aren't getting early appointments. Um, Will that lead uh, to a lifetime of poor oral health? Well, hopefully it's, it's not going to be a lifetime of poor oral health, but it's certainly a bad start. The... Governments going back uh, to 1994, and that's 30 years ago, said that children should be screened by the HSE Dental Service in second class, fourth class and sixth class. You know, currently there's about 200,000 children in second, fourth and sixth class. Not even half of those have been seen. So, you know, there are more dull questions revealing the figures. And while the pandemic is is used as an excuse for, for lots of things not happening the reality is that because we have a problem with the medical card scheme, the same dentists are supposed to be seeing children and now being asked by the HSC to see adults, to see special care patients. They are under intense pressure. Uh, that's not going to uh, hold up. Uh, and, and again, that reflects the fact that we need 75 extra dentists to bring us back to where we were 15 years ago in the HSE. So again, mm. You know, the, the, there's the minister announces that there's funding being made available to 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 attend to dental care in the HSE. But what he doesn't say is that the department has instructed the HSE not to take on extra dentists, not to offer extra hours to the existing uh, dental uh, staff in the HSE. So none of this makes sense. And you know, somebody needs to step in and say, we're not just going to talk about things. We're actually going to sit down and address the problems. And that's what's 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 needed right now. Okay, if uh, the average waiting time uh, at 40% of surgeries is three months, uh, is that leading to uh, problems backing up in the system where uh, people have let it go or maybe haven't got to see a dentist at all, uh, for that matter? Some people uh, will see the dentist in three months. Some people will give up or can't get to see a dentist. Uh, Is that leading to problems in the system and then to people looking elsewhere and maybe going overseas for treatments? Well, yeah, I mean, the essence of good dentistry is prevention. So if you're waiting longer or if you choose not to go, then ultimately you're only storing up problems. Um, of course, people are perfectly entitled to go wherever they wish to go to go outside the state if they wish. But there are separate newspaper headlines today warning of the dangers of, of going abroad for medical and dental treatment and warnings from the College of Surgeons about many of the unsafe arrangements and, and, and the lasting damage 
that that can be done. So that's and not necessarily the best answer either. The headline uh, in that is uh, how six people have lost their lives. Six people died uh, travelling overseas uh, for medical and cosmetic procedures. Uh, you see a lot of bariatric surgery in particular uh, taking place uh, abroad, but also a lot of people travelling for dental work. Uh, there's been some questions about the standard of care given to people in Turkey. Uh, is that a country that you would ask people to think twice about? Well, look, I suppose we have to be careful not, not to generalise about uh, entire uh, dental uh, dentistry in, in, in a country. I suppose what, what we would say is that while people go abroad, and usually it's for, for extensive cosmetic treatments, the, the problems tend to be over-treatment and, you know, many people go abroad because they've been convinced that this is a way of saving money. It's a false economy, of course, if you end up having to, to pay more when you come back to get undone the damage that's been caused. But the best advice is actually to go and speak to your local dentist, to have a, a discussion, have an examination. He or she will set out the options for you. But, you know, where people go abroad without even uh, investigating the, the, the possibilities locally, I mm. think that's the biggest mistake they make. Ultimately, the problems that, that they encounter tend to be because of over-treatment, because when people are abroad, they're persuaded, well, now that you're here, the more treatments you get, the more money you'll save. And, of course, that's actually the road to yeah. to ruin for many people. And it's not easy to find uh, a way of dealing with complaints. In Ireland, thankfully, we have a very good dental complaints resolution service. Mm. But if you're trying to deal with a problem in Ireland with a clinic, many thousands of kilometres away in some cases then you know it's it's next to impossible so yeah, Well you mirror what the I, Department of Foreign Affairs is saying that people should weigh up the risks and benefits of procedures if they are going to travel to Turkey or elsewhere but they also say that they're aware of some citizens who have experienced complications in the course of their treatment in Turkey and a number have died following medical procedures uh, the department says Irish citizens considering medical treatment in Turkey are advised to carry out independent research regarding the credentials of of any potential service provider and to ensure that the facility is accredited with uh, the Turkish authorities. Well, good luck with that uh, is the first thing that comes to mind, is it not? Well, yeah, and there have, there have been unfortunate, uh, unfortunately there have been fatalities where people went abroad for dental treatment as well. So it isn't, uh, it isn't something that's confined to high-end medical procedures. You know, the department is issuing uh, advice which is essentially saying you know, investigate. It's very difficult to investigate the the credibility of clinics in in other countries. I go back to the starting point I made, which is, you know, in the first instance, talk to your local dentist. You may find that you know you're not happy or you disagree, but at least you've been you've been uh, given the advice as to what's the appropriate treatment. Because very often people only start looking at things like costs when they're actually saying, well, is actually that treatment necessary? Is it appropriate? Do I need as much treatment as has been advocated? And, you know, the Dental mm. Council, which is the regulatory body put in place to protect patients, has guidance on its website on the questions you should ask, whether it's an Irish dentist or a dentist abroad. And that's actually a very useful guide, which we would always recommend. And, mm. and it's a separate body. It's not ourselves. They're there to protect patients. So there, there are questions that people should always ask. Okay. 
we uh, didn't speak uh, about recruitment yet, but it is a bit like the housing crisis, isn't it? Uh, I mean, if you had more houses, you wouldn't have as many people homeless. If you had more dentists, you wouldn't have as many people waiting to get an appointment. Uh, there's a, a real crisis in, in recruitment. Yeah, and in fact, the housing issue does does ha- have a bearing as well because certainly in a lot of the bigger towns and cities, the cost of housing makes it difficult to recruit staff if you're in a dental practice. But, you know, we have a shortage of dentists and, and nurses and hygienists. So what that means, and we've presented proposals to the government, is that we need to look and see other bottlenecks which we can remove. There are changes that could be made on work permit uh, regulations Clearly, we need more school places for dental schools. Um, There's a need to employ more in the public service. I think people won't work there while they see the service is so understaffed. There's there's an amount of different initiatives that the government needs to look at. We accept that it's not confined to dentistry, but we have a particular problem now. And, you know, the government just needs to step up and show it's doing things rather than constantly promising and talking about things. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment, Fintan. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's Fintan Hurahan, CEO of the Irish Dental Association. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, if uh, you're in Greg's Lane uh, this morning, we didn't forget about you. We got a, a couple of calls uh, a couple of weeks ago from uh, some people in Greg's Lane uh, because the bus stop has uh, been taken away since uh, the N51 between Slane and Navin was upgraded. We'd Wendy in touch uh, who says, uh, where's the bus stop gone? Uh, and a lot of complaints had gone into the council, but they hadn't been responded to. Another text uh, from a lady with a, a disability who said, up to now I had my independence via the Drogheda Navin 190 bus. Since the work was done uh, to make uh, the road, uh, the new road, they've omitted to put up a bus stop. They took it down. They took our bus stop down now. I've no transport need to rely on others to pay money for a taxi. Uh, That's the other option. Uh, There are some people on our lane who are elderly and used to travel by bus to Navin. They're unable to do it now. This has taken the small bit of independence and humanity uh, that they and I have away. How much money did Mead County Council spend on the new road uh, and uh, it wouldn't cost a fortune to put the bus stop back. Uh, thank you. Uh, we, as I say, we didn't forget about you. Uh, we said we'd get on to Mead County Council and we did. Uh, and Mead County Council got back to us uh, to say that there were actually no official bus stops on the road before the road was upgraded. Uh, so they weren't official bus stops which means that they couldn't put them back after they upgraded the road and that it was a question for the National Transport Authority and or Bus Erin. They also did ask us to point out to you that the Mead Accessible Transport Project may be uh, an option uh, for people if uh, they can't get a, a around and uh, need assistance to do that and that could be the solution to your problem. But what about the bus stop at Greg's Lane? Well we do have some very good news for you this morning because uh, we contacted Bus Erin. They say that their understanding is that the stop at Greg's Lane, Dunmo, has always been categorised as an informal stop used by bus errand drivers to pick up or drop off passengers when it was safe to do so, but it wasn't an official bus stop. Uh, the addition of bus stops, they say, is something that is constantly monitored by bus errand and they engage with the National Transport Authority on an ongoing basis in relation to the routes. But they say they're going to pass on the feedback uh, to the NTA. Uh, and they also say uh, that bus 
concern will look into carrying out a road safety audit and assess the feasibility of adding a stop at this location. In the event that it is feasible, we will need to to bring it to the attention of the NTA for decision. But uh, the good news that I mentioned is that they are looking into it. They're going to carry out a study into it. And if all goes well, uh, they'll be asking the NTA for permission to put back the bus stop or to make uh, an official bus stop available for you. Hopefully that uh, is uh, the kind of result that you were hoping for. Now, uh, as you probably know, uh, the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs Use met over the weekend uh, and it'll meet again in another month's time. Uh, In the month in between now and then, we may hear from some of uh, the contributors uh, on occasion because some of the contributions were very interesting. Uh, We're going to listen to a a lady now called Gillian O'Donnell who spoke to the Citizens' Assembly about her own experience. Both my parents were people that had used drugs. Um, I was born addicted to heroin um, back in the late 70s. I won't go too far into the age, but uh, yeah. Um, so I was in hospital for the first three months of my life. Then I went back home with my parents who were in the inner city town during the middle of a heroin epidemic. So um, we got involved, with, the, the younger kids got involved with running drugs from one part of the um, the flats to the other part of the flats. So, yeah, I became very accustomed to it very early in life. It was, you know, part of the infrastructure, I suppose. Very interesting to hear from someone uh, who was addicted to heroin at a very young age. I think it was like a perfect storm, if I'm honest with you. It was my environment. It was the area I lived in. I lived in a poor community area. You know, both my parents were people that had used drugs. It was part of the norm where I lived, you know, so it wasn't something that was back then, you know, a big thing. Nowadays, obviously, it would be horrendous, but back then it was kind of part and parcel of the the environment. It seems mad uh, to some extent. uh, I suppose it's not that unexpected to hear both parents were drug addicts. Uh, Gillian's mum and dad were both addicts, but because of their drug use, she was born an addict. And indeed, uh, as she said, this is going back to the 1970s when heroin was new in uh, the country. Her father was one of uh, the country's first casualties, uh, this country's first casualties from heroin. It it was only out, so obviously on his death certificate, heroin overdose was on it, so it was one of the first of the five. Yeah, Yeah, I suppose it's like many of my peers as well. There's a point where you know, something happens and obviously you have to face the consequences of your addiction. A lot of that is, um, would be criminality and then you get criminalised for it so that, like, it continues then throughout your life because your criminal record is not something that you can actually forget about. It, you know, follows you through and, it, you know, even now I'm facing blocks because of my criminal record. You know, there was an incident there. Um, I was in my own accommodation with my children I had gone to court for something minor. Like, I, I do understand I have to take the consequences of, you know, my behaviour, but I think the consequences were too severe here. Um, I've lo- I lost my home and my children for a four-month sentence. I went in and I explained the circumstances to the judge, you know, that her, you know, imposing a sentence will result in my children going to care. She asked me where was my parents, and I said, technically, Your Honour, that's you. You know, I was awarded a seat since I'm... Um, like six years old 
So um, she basically turned around and told me that it was like, that's not a get out of jail free card. I explained that, you know, when I do come out of prison, my home is gone. So fast forward four months later, I left Mountjoy Prison with no home, no children. Um, I ended up in emergency accommodation despite being on my own majority of my life. I never became homeless, but as a result of that, I did become homeless to where um, my addiction escalated because I was in an environment, you know, um, homeless accommodation. Born a heroin addict uh, and uh, continued uh, to use heroin, addicted to heroin. Uh, but things took a, a turn for the worse when Gillian moved on to crack cocaine. I don't think it's actually the drug. I think the drug is a symptom, if I'm honest with you. You know, we can pick a different drug and say it's this or that, it's the other. Um, I think I never was around, I was around heroin, but I had never come into like obviously I had come into contact with crack cocaine but I think you know I was traumatised being in emergency accommodation I was traumatised at the losing my children so um, you know obviously the addiction escalated and I tried different drugs that I probably wouldn't have you know if I hadn't been traumatised wouldn't have probably tried but it took a hold of me yeah That's uh, Gillian O'Donnell uh, one of uh, the contributors uh, to the Citizens Assembly on drugs use over the weekend Uh, We'll hear from more of the contributors over the course of uh, this month Interesting stories to say the least That's our programme for today Maggie McGuire Research Chris Murray was in the control tower I'm Michael Godwilling was here for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM Good morning, bye-bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie